Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This episode of the GabFest contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest for October 8th, 2020, the spitting into a sheet of plexiglass edition. I'm David Plotz. I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm joined by Emily Bazelon of Yale University Law School and the New York Times Magazine from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hello, David. And by John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes from somewhere with some really depressing-ass ceiling. Like Poor a really John. sad, sad punch-out ceiling there above you. I don't know where it is. Uh, I'm actually in the CBS Washington Bureau, but you're right. The, the image on the Zoom call right now looks like I should be pressing you for a little bit more detail about your financial history before I make this uh, lease agreement with you. <laughs> actually, I feel like you're, you're like in a boiler room, and after this, you're going to make calls and try to sell, sell 80-year-olds on some penny stock. So maybe right, right, or tell them their social security is um, being revoked right. until they give me their um, yeah. Can we just admire that John has repartee in him right now since he was on television like till late last night trying yeah, and, to be uh, smart and sharp and up again early this morning. Although they canceled my my hit, which will which gives you some indication of um, how quickly the vice presidential debate has already you know made its way through the news cycle. Or, or the yes. alternative version what? is that they didn't want to hear what I had to say. I think the first explanation makes a lot of sense. What vice presidential debate? On today's GabFest, we will get to the vice presidential debate, but not first. First, the super spreader in chief's case of COVID has thrown another surprise into this presidential race. How will Trump's disease and the wildfire spread of it through his staff and through the White House affect the election? Then said vice presidential debate. It was last night between Kamala Harris and Mike Pence. Who won? Who lost? Doesn't matter. It was just like regular politics. It was just like, it was like, it was like being transported back to 2008 or 2012. It was so refreshing. Then even if Joe Biden wins the presidency, his chance of getting anything done will depend on whether Democrats hold a majority in the Senate. How does the race for the Senate look right now? And how mad are they going to be if that fool named Cal Cunningham in North Carolina blows it for them? Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. So I, uh, GabFest listeners, I'm a really normal, regular kind of person. I watch a lot of sports. I go to bed early. I just want to live a quiet, boring life. And like most Americans, I have found the last four years just exhausting. We have, we have this situation where we always are constantly having to pay attention to this president and the, the, the chaos that he causes. And I feel like what, whatever has happened, it's now, I mean, it's literally on steroids. The president is literally on steroids. The chaos that the president has unleashed upon his administration, upon all of us, is unspeakable. This last week has been incomprehensibly chaotic. The forced hospitalization of President Trump, who has now hopped up on some kind of 
drugs, apparently. He's sending appalling tweets that continue to downplay this pandemic. He's pulling out of economic stimulus talks and maybe not pulling out of economic stimulus talks. The entire White House and national security apparatus is sick or in quarantine. His doctors forced into this terrible, like forced into whatever, lying for him and lying for him in this bizarre way. So, Emily, when it started, it felt like there was some question that the president might get a sympathy bump, that this might remake the presidential race somehow because people would feel bad for the president and maybe he would have come out of it and and uh, re-won some trust. Um, but he's committed these two acts of political malpractice. First of all, rather than being a humble, modest, good patient modeling lessons learned, he went maskless and acted recklessly. And more bizarrely, then he dynamited the stimulus talks where Democrats were offering to let him have $2.4 trillion to inject into the economy. So I don't really know what the question was, but man, I feel I feel <laughs> well, chaotic. I was going to say, yeah, I mean, I just I can't quite understand how hope springs eternal that President Trump hope is going to eternal, turn a really. leaf and hope picks eternal and turn into a new person. Like this is not the kind of behavior that he has any interest in or maybe is capable of. I don't know. It's just not it's not going to happen. And this is the president we've got. And uh, the, the canceling of the stimulus talks might just go poof in the air tomorrow. There is a problem, though. The Democrats want $2.4 trillion. The Republicans say $1.6. That's almost a trillion difference. Seems like a lot. And I don't see how Trump has any leverage because they think they're going to win the election, the Democrats. And they obviously would rather and need to be seen as helping the economy now. I mean, this is really alarming. The economy, if they don't pass any stimulus, could be in a ditch and no one will be able to get it out until January, presumably. The Republicans are also kind of mystifying unless you think there's some like weird chess playing going on where Mitch McConnell has already given up on Trump and thinks maybe he can salvage the Senate and then block Joe Biden and destroy his presidency by having no stimulus in the new year in the new Congress. That is so dismal and cynical that I feel bad even laying it out there. But I really don't get this stimulus move. John, do you think it's just like a momentary ploy and tomorrow they'll be back at the table? I don't know. I mean, it's very hard to figure out the at first, my first very first reaction to the president was that this was another instance in which he creates chaos, then there's a solution and then came claims credit for the solution. So he walks away from talks, everybody says, Oh, no, 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 they come up with a solution, even though he's not involved in the actual solution making. And then he he says, you see, I got this done, um, which wouldn't have been crazy. You know, um, I mean, it's sort of a sort of what you do at the, um, you know, haggling in the market square uh, on vacation, which isn't something I do, but I gather people do do that. You know, you, you walk away and then they but anyway, it doesn't seem I mean, it's just it's it, it, now it's devolved into a kind of weird chaos because that, I thought that was his strategy until he tweeted not very long after unwinding it and making all kinds of offers. I mean, it's a, just kind of a. It's incredibly depressing when you listen to Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, say, if you're going to make a mistake, do too much. Don't, there won't be a mistake from doing too little. 100,000 small businesses have shuttered. People are in, there, there is going to be permanent lasting damage to lots of people's lives, particularly those at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale as a result of damage being done over the time that this is um, left hanging. 
I, I want to go back just very briefly to, well, not very briefly, to the president's illness. If you look at the three main critiques of the president's response to COVID-19, downplayed the risk, didn't take measures to fight it, misled the public. Those are the global <laughs> check, critiques of... Check, check, Yeah. If you were the Biden campaign and wanted to come up with a script that got everybody to pay attention to those failures and then animated each of them in individual form in their most neon fashion, you would be hard-pressed to come up with a better script than the way the president in the White House has handled his own personal health issues. Downplayed the nature of the, the risk from the virus, didn't take the measures to mitigate against it, and then when the president got COVID, misled repeatedly, and then misled about misleading, including the vice president during the debate, all of which echoes precisely the larger critique of the president. And for politically, the president has been trying to get the conversation off of COVID-19. This seems to keep it in the center of the campaign for the remaining period of it with the intensity of a dentist drill. I want to briefly just nod at the Potemkin quality of all of this, this Potemkin world that's been created around the president where you have doctors, his doctors, creating a false story out in public to cheer him up, lying about his health to the public to make him feel better. And there are no analogies for this really in modern American political life. This is not something that that we've ever witnessed before. It is pure tin pot dictator propaganda, propaganda nonsense here. And and this is what we this is what the, the you know, the the incredible infrastructure and the incredible health capacity that exists at Walter Reed. You know, I grew up, um, my father worked at the NIH and I grew up driving past that hospital all the time. And it was, it's such an iconic building. It's such a beautiful, symbolic building. And it's on this gorgeous campus. And you, you look at it and you think, well, that, you know, that really, that National Naval National Medical Center really represents something good. And just to see the disgrace and the, the shame that the president is bringing on it and the, and the, destruction of this reputation too it's it's just it's horrible and embarrassing for all of us and he doesn't give a shit he just like he doesn't give a shit about it and it's it's a tragedy it is like it's it's a it's a tragedy this is what tragedy is tragedy is is like human folly born by not simply the people who have who've committed the human folly but everyone around them sorry sorry forgive me okay i'm i'm uh also fascinated that the president has decided to make his closing message of his campaign suck it up on COVID and get back into the game when 210,000 people have died and when the country thinks he's mishandled the issue. The president said he won't debate in the um, in the next debate, which the, the Committee on Presidential Debates has said has to be virtual in order to accommodate the results of the president's getting COVID from not following any of the recommendations of his health uh, advisors. So now the president has turned the debate story into a COVID-19 story. It just, seem, it just seems, um, if you were just thinking of this purely from a political standpoint, he's really keeping the focus on COVID-19 here as the, as the uh, election window closes. I don't think it's strategic. I think it's about spectacle and attention. Oh, yeah. No, I know. I don't, I don't think it's strategic at all, but it's... But, if ever there well, were a we moment, we still keep asking. Like it seems like you would think about the political consequences. Like, like you're a political analyst. He's the president. He's ready for re-election. It's the frame, but I don't think it's the wait, frame. Wait, Emily, but what I do you mean? If, if, I, wait, sorry, John. Can Emily? Emily, what do you mean when you say it's it's just about spectacle and attention? That he cares more about the spectacle and attention than he does about 
framing it correctly politically or that he's made a I mean, mistake. I about just that. don't think I ever understand what President Trump cares about exactly. But I think what we're seeing is a focus on being at the center of attention and on creating spectacle, not any kind of political thinking, because it doesn't make any sense. And I don't I just don't think that you can like make it. I'm not John. I wasn't that wasn't a criticism of you whatsoever. It just I just like you can't make political sense of it. I don't think. Well, I think what I think makes this I think you're a you're right about that. And it's generally more true that it's um, hard to make sense of the president's I mean, a lot of things that he does are not out of a, a kind of pre-thought through strategy. What what I think is interesting here is you have two parts of the president's own impulses combined. So it's not just the president's impulse impulses measured against what a kind of traditional politician might do. It's the president's impulses matched against his previous impulses. So the previous impulse before he got sick was shift the turf, talk about Biden's son, talk about violence in the cities, talk about the economy, talk about anything but COVID-19. Don't even, as David once, I think, uh, correctly put his finger on it, don't even put your hands on COVID-19 for the purposes of m- mitigating and and improving the situation, because once you put your hands on it to solve it, you get your hands on it for being blamed for its downsides. That was the previous strategy. And now his current strategy, which is I'm strong, I've bounced back from this, seems at odds with that. It's kind of one set of impulses fighting against another. And that's yeah, what impulse is a good word. Agree with impulse. I don't I think it's sort of reflexive. A question about this uh, kerfluffle over the next debate. So the Commission on Presidential Debates decided to make the next debate between Trump and Biden. This is the second one virtual without telling anyone. Like, they just did it, apparently. And I think that's really interesting. Like, they must have decided there was no way to negotiate over this and that they were just going to make a health and safety call because they knew what Trump would say about it. And that, in a, I mean, it's just a small example of how difficult it is to hold any kind of nonpartisan ground because now they're going to get chewed up as they already have been criticized well, in this, like, vicious partisan It's cycle. also how hard it is to deal with a... A negotiator who, in the case of Trump, acts wholly in bad faith. That that if you d- did a negotiation, you knew that they would not they would not honor those terms. They would not go into it with the idea that this is a good faith negotiation. The idea would be to win it somehow. I mean, of course, you always want to win. You want to win any negotiation, I suppose. But they're ex- Trump is an extremely bad faith negotiator. So I think to, just sort of declaring it to be so is. Probably the only way to get away with it. But John, did you just say that that Trump has said he won't participate? Yeah, he said it was ridiculous. Yeah, he said he won't participate, which is, um, I mean, on the one hand, the committee. First of all, we should just pause for a moment and think about all the accommodations the Committee on Presidential Debates have already had to make to accommodate the president's behavior. So they've talked about changing the rules and cutting the mic, which they will, they will at some point announce what they're going to do on that front. They had to put two pieces of plexiglass in the vice presidential debate because of the super spreader event at the White House. And now they've had to create a televised town hall in order to accommodate the president. I mean, it's an it's in, again, in miniature, a way in which this president and his behavior um, are clashing against tradition and the kind of weak ways in which tradition tries to reassert itself. 
but the president has said he won't participate in the in the, in the debate, and so now we'll go through a round of that. At least, I guess we don't have to go through the process of constantly chasing people at the White House around the table to get them to say when the president's last negative test was, which presumably would have been some kind of precondition for the next debate, which is assuring that he is crossed some health threshold and isn't still shredding virus. Actually, I want to go back to that last negative test. That's another shocking thing, which is it's now clear because the White House will not say when his last negative test is, that his last negative test is somewhere back in the Paleozoic era, that they that he was not being <laughs> tested regularly. And either either he was being tested regularly and he had a positive test, you know, perhaps even on the day of the debate that they're not owning up to, um, or he wasn't being tested regularly, either of which is is just shameful, shameful, shameful. And the fact that they won't answer That's it so means weird. it's true. Because they, if they had a, the if they had a, that, yeah. if they had a negative test from Tuesday or Wednesday or Monday, even they'd say, "Oh yes, he was tested Tuesday or Wednesday or Monday," but they don't. And by the way, the reason this is important beyond health issues is that if you want to get the economy going again, because a vi- because a vaccine is not going to be widely available until the spring or summer of next year, and you've got to live in that interim period. You've got to find some way to behave in public that makes people feel like the risk has been reduced. And the way you do that is through doing all the things that the president and his folks were not doing at the uh, at the uh, White House super spreader event. So this isn't this is about the economy as much as it is about uh, health. It's about the it's about just the fucking human decency of the people you work with and the people who support you showing up and their loved ones and being and just being responsible enough to say, hey, let's just be careful because, you know, it seems like there was a bunch of virus at that event. How you doing? Like, how about that? How about just that level of human decency? Could you manage that? You've outflanked me on the human decency. Uh, That's my lane. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) <laughs> I think if you if you were pro human decency, you wouldn't even need to say that. All right, last question on this, um, and John, just for you quickly, which is, insofar as we have data so far, what do the polls suggest about how the president's illness has affected the race, if at all? Well, sixty to seventy percent, depending on the poll you look at, think that the president's personal irresponsibility led to his getting sick. Um, And the polls have gotten worse for the president, both nationally and in specific states. It's hard to know whether that's a result of his debate performance, which people had a very negative reaction towards, uh, or whether it's a a result of his getting sick. The polling is a little all over the place on whether it has changed people's perception of their personal risk with respect to being infected. Because you could imagine that one response to this would be, gee, even the most protected place in America becomes a super spreader event. Then then that reminds people of the virulence of COVID. In some polls, it shows that people's personal concern did tick up a little. In others, it showed it's basically where it has been, which is about 66 some odd percent of the country is worried about getting it themselves. And so and it and this all kind of splits along partisan lines. So there doesn't seem to be any new revelations as a result of the president getting it. Uh, One other point I would say, so his poll numbers have gone down. There's also in the 538 polling suggests that that recently when you ask people their top concern, it's flipped. It used to be economy over COVID. Now it's COVID over the economy. And if we go back to controlling the turf being good for you as a candidate, that's turf. Biden wants that to be the number one issue because he dominates the president so much when you ask people who do you trust to handle COVID more. When economy is number one issue, people trust the president more. 
Can I object to that framing? I mean, you just said very cogently a couple minutes ago that getting COVID under control is the way back to the economy. I feel like if someone asked me that COVID versus economy number one issue in a poll, I would be very frustrated because they're so intertwined. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And it's one of the things when we get to the debate, I think Kamala Harris left a lot on the table. She could have argued that. I mean, this is not a partisan point. You talk to economists, as I have, lots of them. And the argument that that you that managing COVID um, is crucial to improving the economy is a central thing that they say. And so they, it shouldn't be two separate issues. It's just that's the way it's asked in poll. Slate Plus members get bonus segments here on the GabFest, on other Slate podcasts. And when you become a Slate Plus member, you also are supporting some of the great work that Slate has been able to do during this campaign, during the Black Lives Matter protests, uh, looking at some of the claims about voting irregularity and the ridiculousness of that slate's been really digging into that. And uh, we want to encourage you to become a member. So if you are able to, it's just $35 a year for your first year, go to slate.com slash gabfest plus and become a member today. And today on our slate plus segment, we're going to be talking about more about this. We're going to talk about whether the white house's permanent staff and the secret service should have to work in a place that is as contaminated with this deadly virus as they as the white house is so go to slate.com slash plus to become a member now this episode of the GapFest is brought to you by aura frames are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life aura frames are beautiful wi-fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos it is super easy to upload and share photos via the aura app and if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames, in the notes that I have here, says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister, or friend, an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Last night in Utah, there was a really like extremely normal vice presidential debate. There was plexiglass on the stage, um, but otherwise it was just normal. It was like a you know you had Mike Pence, who is the 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 kind of standard bog standard normal Republican conservative Christian evangelical calm conservative talk show host kind of vice president and Kamala Harris, who is historic because she is the first woman of color on a major party ticket and the first black woman on a major party ticket. And, but is it just kind of regulation politician too? And they had a really, really dreary debate and goodness. It was so happy and satisfying to sit there and kind of like basically tune out as they were having their debate. Emily, did you enjoy that really boring debate? (laughs) I think I was a little more on edge than you were because I was watching, thinking about all the gender 
constraints or concerns that Harris might be having. And I think I was like hyper too alert to anything she did that made me worried that she was turning off some sexist somewhere. Like you can't really expect that's just not going to like you can't help that. So I actually thought that she had a good opening statement. I worried that she was like just the volume was up too high for some part of the beginning. And I thought Pence was doing an excellent job of being really understated. I mean, maybe that's the part that I enjoyed was just compared to all the ugliness of the first debate. It felt like kind of standard politician stuff, except then he really started lying. And I didn't like that. That like that worried me. That made me feel like actually the changing political dialogue has seeped um seeped in you, more deeply, which I already thought, but it was You mean like that, that if a regulation politician like Mike Pence feels so comfortable lying as baldly and as grotesquely and as grandly as he did, that means that, man, you there really is no standard to uphold anymore. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm like romanticizing some previous era, but he lied with such apparent conviction and heart that it just, and sincerity, that kind of made me worried. John. You have your finger up. Well, David. <laughs> so what, when I worked on my book, I spent a lot of time thinking about standards and and um, where the standards for the presidency come from and who used to enforce them and what happened to them and what happens when we all have to make up the standards on the fly. Um, Mike Pence used to be one of the great standard keepers, one of the great standard articulators, and one of the great standard monitors. And so one of the arguments is that when standards disappeared, it was in part because the people who used to be so invested in maintaining and keeping those standards and keeping us all fresh by pointing to the cleaned plaque on the wall on which those standards were written had abandoned the field. And during the Clinton years, Pence said that if a president's leaders in a president's party did not abandon that president when that president lied. He said, if our leaders flinch at this responsibility, which is to say abandoning their president, they would do well to heed the proverb, if a ruler listens to lies, all his officials become wicked. So you might take that in the contemporary context as... True. Like, we've seen that. Yes, that has happened. <laughs> well, you, you could take that in the broad context with respect to Mike Pence and his relationship with the president. But you can also take it with very specific uh, investigation of what Mike Pence said in the debate itself. Many things he said were flatly untrue, including when he was referring to the super spreader event, and he said it was an outdoor event, which all of our scientists regularly routinely advise. So on its face, that's a lie, because it was an indoor event as well. The super spreader event, which was, of course, the announcement of the nomination of Amy Coney Barrett, which had an outdoor ceremony, but then also an indoor component where there was lots of hugging and uh, close conversation. And also... Uh, it wasn't, this is just garden variety misleading, but um, it wasn't just an outdoor event in which everybody followed the rules. It was an outdoor event in which everybody was packed very tightly together, which scientists um, do not routinely advise. And so that, with respect to that quote, is um, obviously a, 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 a huge clash. But then there's a more important point here. He's, he's the head of the coronavirus task force. The central claim is that the administration has misled the public. He said about that claim, we have never done that. He said, we've always told the American people the truth. And yet in real time, he is saying something that is untrue as he mischaracterized what happened at the White House super spreader event. So the stakes are kind of high here because 210,000 people are dead. So when the stakes are high and you're the head of the coronavirus task force and all 
inspiration should tell you to tell the truth, he doesn't. Um, and so I think that's more than just garden variety shilly-shallying that goes on in politics. Emily, I was, I guess, most interested in this debate as to whether it would reshape the dynamics of the presidential debate. And it appeared to me going in that Mike Pence needed to have a big win. It had to be Pence really had to come up with something big and he had to really put Harris on her heels and make her defend Biden in some way that was uncomfortable or, or raise issues that were going to make her feel awkward. And none of that happened. I mean, he, he lied uh, throughout. He played defense very effectively because he lied so well. But in terms of changing the dynamic of the race, it didn't feel to me like he did that. Am I, am I, am I misreading it? Oh, no, I don't think he changed the dynamic of the race. I mean, I thought that he put Harris on the defensive pretty effectively on fracking and the New Green Deal. And I thought she had better answers. Uh, it linked again to the economy. I mean, she did okay. She talked about jobs. That was good. I thought one of her best moments when she started talking about free community college and debt, reducing debt, like those are very solid democratic issues. She laid them out really well. So, David, you're right. The, the dynamic's not going to change. George Herbert Walker Bush in 1980 wouldn't even debate um, uh, Walter Mondale. He said, we're, it's the minor leagues. We're like the, the mud hens, um, uh, name of a minor league team. So the dynamic isn't going to change, although I think Pence was really effective in holding territory that's better for President Trump and offers a pathway if President Trump were as disciplined as Mike Pence to keep the conversation on fracking, trade, taxes, which is just better, a better turf for the president based on current polling. And also, I think Kamala Harris was defensive on those issues. Having said that, when Mike Pence talks about the Green New Deal, I'm wondering if people really know outside of the, the bubble what that means. And if you're trying to make a case to people about the the Biden ticket, you have to be more than just asserting a series of things, which Mike Pence did. You have to kind of make the case. And I think this is a downside of partisan-only politics, which is that candidates no longer have to make cases outside of their echo chamber. To the extent that he kept making this ca the, the cases that he was making, it seemed to, to me to be of limited utility because it was all very kind of Fox News speak, um, which obviously does fine for your team. But the president's poll numbers are in a position where he needs to do more, which is bring people he's been shedding since 2016 back into the fold. And so in that way, the brand of constant assertions using jargon seems to me to not be that effective. That, that's a great point, John. I think one of the things I, I have such... Uh, extremely ambivalent feelings about Bill Clinton at this point. But one of the things I think Bill Clinton was so good at was to take policy issues, which may have been super partisan policy issues, and really put them in human terms and specific terms around things that people would understand. Biden and Harris have done a slightly better job than Trump and Pence, but you're but because everything is is done in this shorthand, everything is done in this like either progressive shorthand or or Fox News shorthand, people don't even know what they're talking about. I, I'm a relatively educated person. I'm not really sure what the Green New Deal is. Like, I don't actually know what the components of the Green New Deal is. I'm not proud to admit that on this show, but but people <laughs> talk about it in this way. And, I, you know, I can make a guess, but do I actually know? Has anyone actually told me this, this, and this? Not, I don't know. I don't know that. And also referring to AOC, who knows what an AOC is? Who's, I mean, because again, debates are supposedly about breaking beyond the politically obsessed. 
Right. I, um, How, especially if you don't have the picture up of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, maybe you're not signaling beyond your own base what you are trying to signal. I, my final point about the debate, I thought the most effective moments for Harris were all around the Affordable Care Act. Yes. And the, that point when she said, if you are, you know, if you have a pre-existing, if you have diabetes, heart disease, uh, whatever else, or had COVID, they're coming for you. If you're, you know, a relative of someone who did it, they're coming for you. If you're less than 26 on your parents' health plan, they're coming for you. That they're, they're coming for you, I thought was really good. And I, I think she had a bunch of opportunities to kind of return to that. And she did it a little bit, but, but I would keep pushing on it because it is, it's, uh, it's a real winning issue for them. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Senate Democrats need to win three seats and, of course, uh, have Joe Biden win the presidency in order to hold a Senate majority. The polling genies seem to be putting it about 50-50 or maybe slightly in the Democrats' favor whether they will capture the Senate. Let us start this topic. Just a very quick rundown of which seats are in play. Doug Jones in Alabama, Democrat holding a very Republican seat, expected to lose it. So that's now now the Democrats need four seats. Cory Gardner, John Hickenlooper race in Colorado. The Democrat Hickenlooper is favored there. Arizona, Mark Kelly is seems to be leading Martha McSally, the incumbent. That's another to the Democrats if, if things go as planned. Joni Ernst is in trouble in Iowa, another Republican against Teresa Greenfield, a Democrat. Susan Collins is down to Sarah Gideon in Maine. So those, if those four Republican seats went and Biden captured the White House, the Democrats would have a majority. There are other seats in Montana. Um, Steve Daines is in a close race with Steve Bullock because everyone in Montana is named Steve. <laughs> and in North Carolina, Tom Tillis, another Republican, was in big trouble against this guy, Cal Cunningham. And... Cal Cunningham, the Democrat, is in a sexting affair brouhaha that is just going to make Democrats crazy if that that's what costs them the Senate. Lindsey Graham is in a very, very unexpectedly tight race in South Carolina against Jamie Harrison. And in Georgia, there are two races, both of which Republicans are probably favored in, Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue. But Democrats have a chance in both of them, especially if there's a strong Democratic turnout in the presidential race, presumably. So, John... F538 well has this. Thank you. I know. Um, 538 has a slight lean for Democrats. Um, you're not a pollster, but what what do you think are the factors that affect whether this is is this going to be a wave year for Democrats or whether it's like a you know maybe maybe it's going to be close and maybe look at 50 or maybe look at 49 or what where it I don't know. I mean, I think it it, it does feel like it's on a knife's edge. Um, the most interesting thing to me this week was. Um, in was both Martha McSally in Arizona in her debate with Mark Kelly, basically not um, when she was asked if she was um, uh, proud of the president. Um, her answer was very painful to watch um, because of her 
effort to try to distance herself, which interests me because Kelly Loeffler in Georgia ran an ad in which Donald Trump, a famous clip of him at a wrestling um, match, pinning Vince McMahon, replaces McMahon's head with the coronavirus. In other words, just a very macho, yay, um, Donald Trump. She's in a She's basically in a primary fight in Georgia, and so that's what you have to do in that fight. Arizona, which is trending blue and might go to Biden, even though it went to Trump last time and where McSally is behind, she's trying to distance herself from the president, which is impossible. Cornyn in Texas, John Cornyn, who is should be safe in Texas, nevertheless, in an interview, was critical of the president, uh, particularly the president's behavior with respect to getting COVID-19, which is, again, shows him trying to create some distance with the president. What does that mean? It just means that in these close races, and Texas shouldn't be in that category, but nevertheless, John Cornyn is feeling some pressure. The candidates though I think that this is an impossible thing, are trying to at least create some distance with the president, which suggests that it's the president, I mean, we knew this, but the president always in modern times has a real influence in how these races go. So that's the answer to your question, which is, as goes Trump, so goes the fortunes of those Republicans. And it has gotten sticky enough here at the first week of October that you have people trying to distance themselves from him, which is a mugs game. You can't do it, particularly this kind of a president. So it gives you, I guess, some just some sense of how nervous they are uh, among Republicans. So hey, John, I, one thing, Loeffler's in a primary race. Right. You said that earlier. Yeah. She yeah. is. So yeah. like, what's up with that? When's that? I don't get that. Like between now and November 3rd, she has to win a primary? Yeah, it's a special because it's still it's still the, I think it's still the Johnny Isaacson seat. I th- think it's a nonpartisan primary. And if no one gets 50 in November, right. they run it off. So the difference between the two is, is Loeffler's in the kind of idiosyncratic a Georgia race where it's a it's a special so um, it, it, effectively in a red state that makes it a primary so she has to deal with a more conservative audience in a primary because in the special election in Georgia if you don't get more than fifty percent in November um, uh, you you go to a runoff on the fifth of January she's running against Doug Collins congressman from Georgia so she's it's a Republican on Republican there as opposed to McSally who's Republican versus a Democrat in Arizona which is trending blue. Although there is a Democrat in that race as well. There's Raphael yeah, Warnock, who's, who's yeah. trying to trying to get one of the two top spots in that race so that he's in the runoff. I, Emily, I'm kind of surprised when I look at a couple of races like Susan Collins in Maine or Cory Gardner, John Hickenlooper race in Colorado, or even the McSally-Kelly race in Arizona, that the Democrats aren't doing even better than they are. It feels didn't like they, Susan Collins win her last race by like more than 30 points? Yes, but it's a state that is that is a demo- well now pretty democratic state in the presidential race, and Collins has been just absolutely hammered for what she's been doing to to support Trump on judicial nominees. Yeah, I guess I'm always interested and kind of surprised when people switch, like both because the world has become more partisan, and also because you have to admit that the person you supported you don't like anymore. And in our kind of tribal team world, I feel like that's gotten harder to do. So I guess that's part of how I explain it to myself. I mean, Collins really complained yesterday about no stimulus funding, assuming that's even relevant today. Who knows? Uh, She made a strong statement about that. She always has trouble figuring out how to position herself. And yet, 
you know, previously people in Maine, like she was super popular. So you have to tumble a really long way if you're someone like her. I mean, that's not true about McSally and some of these other people. But um, Emily, which of these races would be most satisfying to you? I mean, obviously, there's one correct answer for this. <laughs> I'm not answering that question. The, the I am correct a answer for the New York Times. The I correct, cannot answer The correct that answer is it would be most satisfying if Lindsey Graham lost his seat. It would be so deeply satisfying if Lindsey Graham in the South Carolina, which is a, has historically or in the last 25 years been about as Republican a state as there is in the country, and having tied himself, having l- almost literally lashed himself completely to Trump, uh, manages to lose that seat. That would be just wonderfully satisfying there's like the kind of sanctimony unctuousness and hypocrisy of lindsey graham has been something to behold in the past few years and to to have that cost him his seat would be magnificent it probably will not happen it's it's hard to imagine it happening but oh it would be great do you think there there are states like florida which florida does not have a senate race uh georgia has senate races do you think that relatively senate races help trump or hurt him that's a good question. I think it obviously depends on the candidate in the state and whether they have a certain kind of pull in an organization in the state. I remember, and I think this is true, doing reporting in 2016, and people were saying that Portman was going to help Trump in Ohio, Rob Portman, who was up in 2016, because he had his own turnout operation. I'm trying to think about where that would make, where that might be true in these individual races. And I can't... um, I mean, Georgia? Georgia? I don't know. Purdue and Loeffler have... I mean, Purdue and Loeffler... I mean, I don't feel like they have such a um, strong organization that's going to pull people in any significant way towards towards the president. Um, So, David, I'm not doing a very good job of answering your question, but I don't I can't think of a particular Senate race where um, in a state that matters where the senator is going to pull lots of votes that might help. Maybe Collins in Maine. But Especially because Maine has that thing that divides up its electoral One votes, and two, yeah. Yeah, I don't know, though, because Collins is... So what you would want in this case is so for some, you know, moderate Republican who's going to vote for Susan Collins to then come and vote and say, okay, well, I'll vote for Donald Trump. I don't think that person, you know, who is otherwise going to stay home, I don't know how many of those people there are. Or jo- jo- the other one I could think of is Joni Ernst in Iowa, maybe, yeah. but I, I don't know. That's the, a uh, possibility. Last question on this topic is, so in North Carolina, uh, which is a race I confess I had not been following very closely, Tom Tillis, the Republican incumbent, was running against a young, uh, younger uh, Democrat named Cal Cunningham, who is one of these people who exists to be like a co- totally inoffensive a uh, white guy who a few rural Republicans would vote for. And Cal Cunningham has now gotten himself in a sexting scandal with a woman he... This, it's not... Weirdly, it's called a sexting scandal. I read some of the it's texts. It's not really They're sexting. not sexting. Don't you have to send a picture yeah. for it to be sexting? I mean, no, he you don't said, have to send like, a picture like for it to be sexting. Yeah, it wasn't no. sexting. It was like... It was, it was pretty it was, Harlequin romance. It was romance. inappropriate because he is... Yes. You know, he's he's a married <laughs> right. man. I mean, it was where there was smoke, there was fire. Yeah, they had a at least one, maybe two rendezvous. And now he's yeah. been... But here you have this guy. He was He was not running away with the race, but he was definitely heading towards victory. And now he's 
he's just committed uh, a kind of act of political stupidity and malpractice. And yeah, uh, any thoughts on that one, Emily? I mean, I have the most boring thought, which is just like, I don't understand why people do this. And it does seem to be men who decide to sabotage their political careers in precisely this fashion. Like, just, this is not the time, dude. Like, why risk it all for, really? I just can't. Right, get elected. Then get elected. Then have some nice lobbyist mistresses. It just seems like a lot to put on, like, pursuing this infatuated feeling. But I don't know. Maybe I'm just too old to understand. Well, I think hasn't there long been, we've even talked about this on um, on the show, the Slate Political Gap Fest, the connection between <laughs> um, kind of political ambition and public desire for acclaim in the public square and, a, and an association with, uh, uh, you know, boundary, um, boundary challenging uh, personal behavior in the sexual realm. <laughs> I will just recommend Curtis Sittenfeld's novel, Rodham about the relationship between Hillary Rodham Clinton and Bill Clinton for some insight into why someone named Bill Clinton might understand Cal Cunningham. Let us go to cocktail chatter when you are tired of of scrolling through 538 and clicking on their map and are in the mood to sit back with a stiff drink and a soft conversation. Emily, what will you be chattering about? Sometimes I think that Attorney General Bill Barr just, like, imagines what could really make my hair stand on end. So the Justice Department just announced that they have lifted a rule that normally prevents investigations of election fraud in the final months before an election. Why would you have such a rule? Because you don't want to have partisan meddling and you don't want to erode confidence in the results. And so if you're going to do an election fraud investigation, which you totally should do if you think there's election fraud, you want to do it spaced out away from the election. No longer. And given how politicized the Justice Department has become, given that Bill Barr himself on television concocted a false tale about 1,700 ballots being filled out falsely in Texas about an indictment for such event, which such indictment did not happen, I just worry about lifting this rule right now and what that means about the kinds of tales of voter fraud that we are likely to hear in the next few weeks The strategy seems to be that if you can't win more votes in the election, you can undermine confidence in it. And this kind of long-time devotion to making claims of widespread voter fraud has been a Republican tactic for a long time. And I very much recommend my colleague Jim Rutenberg's um, piece in the Times Magazine about it last week. But we should all kind of watch out for this new Justice Department policy. John Dickerson, what is your chatter? Uh, my chatter is about a super cutting edge weapon the army recently announced, um, and it's called napping. Um, I found this a story in my uh, local paper for which Emily works, um, and uh, thanks to the eagle-eyed, I found it because of uh, my eagle-eyed colleague Claire Fahey. So it's not just any napping. According to the Army's revamped physical fitness training manual, it recommends napping um, of the strategic and aggressive variety, which leads you to the question: What exactly is aggressive <laughs> napping? You know, attack the pillow, attack the pillow. For me, aggressive napping. I'm not good at it. 
Can't pull it off. <laughs> this information can be found in the FM 7 Stroke 22 Holistic Health and Fitness System, which, as any dummy knows, is the um, field guide, I think is what it's called. Anyway, it's interesting, though. It focuses on holistic health. So it's not just napping. So, okay, there's the regular stuff, pull-ups, all that stuff. But in, then there's napping, goal-setting, spirituality, journaling, um, and there's no word yet on whether Goop will be making a camouflage tone bowl, but um, <laughs> it's it's very cool. And it basically just um, aggressively embraces all the new things that have been learned in the eight years since the manual was updated about the benefit and power of sleep. And this really matters because soldiers in combat resort to energy drinks, um, which means they're frazzled. It's difficult to do their duties, but it also means when they come back, if sleep is treated as a luxury and not as a basic requirement, like, you know, other elements of physical fitness, then you basically self-medicate with all kinds of things that don't actually help your underlying health. And that matters, as I said, not just in a combat context, but when they come back because of the incredible amount of suffering and expenditure related to disability payments for veterans. So it's a very, um, although I started by being trying to be amusing about it, it's a very cool development and, you know, more proof that if you take sleep seriously, uh, it has all kinds of uh, benefits. Sorry, just, just, just doing some strategic napping there. <laughs> did you, did you finish John? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> My chatter is about the publication of a book that I'm really looking forward to the 99% invisible city, a field guide to the hidden world of everyday design. It is by Roman Mars and Kurt Kolstad. Uh, Roman is, of course, the creator, and Kurt is a is a colleague of Roman's of the Ninety Nine Percent Invisible podcast. And I just want to acclaim that podcast, which hit its tenth anniversary this year, and and it's really one of the great podcasts of the world. This book is going to be fantastic. I've the little bits of it I've seen and heard Roman talk about are glorious and delightful. If you don't know the podcast, 99% Invisible, I just so strongly recommend you listen to it. It is about the small wonders of the world. The John Muallam story about buffaloes uh, is probably the greatest audio story that's ever been told in podcast form. There's, Amazing. Um, this, the story about raccoons and garbage cans in Toronto. Epic. About the history of the post office. Just incredible. It's a wonderful, wonderful podcast. And this book is... a uh, pulling together of some of their best stories and in small essay form. So check out the 99% invisible city and listeners. You have also sent us uh, great chatters again, as I think John was saying last week, man, they're so good. Uh, and there were so many good ones this week. This one, very hard to pick. I went with you, Kevin Collins at Kevin KWC. And what Kevin sends is a, um, short film that's been making way its way around Twitter, which is a, a Louis Lumiere, so early early French film artist or director. I don't know. It was so far ago, so long ago. This is from 1896 that it's like even you wouldn't call him a director. It's just somebody who filmed things. But Louis Lumiere had filmed a snowball fight in Lyon, France. And when you see it, it's in black and white. It's very hitchy and, and broken up. But someone has has some brilliant person has colorized it and adjusted the speed in the way that that movie uh, they shall never grow old did it for world war one footage and so it's now just this 
maybe a minute of footage of a snowball fight in France, including that someone's biking by on a bicycle and everyone in the who's throwing snowballs just teams up to throw snowballs at the person on the bicycle who falls over. It's absolutely glorious. It is so cute and charming and it'll take maybe it's maybe 30 seconds long. Check it out. We'll put a post a link to it. And actually, the real revelation, John, maybe you'll appreciate this, is that those Frenchies could actually throw. Like when I meet a French person these days, they can never throw because they don't really play throwing sports very much. But French people back in 1896 actually had a decent arm. It makes me wonder, like, what sport were they doing that caused them to throw back in 1896? Oh, yeah, no, a, ba- a baguette throwing. This is a oh, huge, that was a big a, oh, big sport, yeah, big sport, huge yeah. sport uh, in the yeah. early, in 19th century yeah. in France. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The the Marseille Moutards, I think, won. They won like three years in a row, right? They and, won the league. And the reason it came to uh, a screeching halt is that um, they've got they colloquialism co- coincided with uh, bread making and. Uh, ultimately, when somebody would suggest that they go out and and throw, somebody would just say, "Bag it," and they just stayed home. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, that's true. Everyone knows that story. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap, doing some excellent mid-show research today. Bridget, good job. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Podcast. June Thomas is managing producer. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer for Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson. I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. So according to at least one report, 34 people in the White House complex have been infected with COVID. One thing that the White House seems to be doing is to be telling those people to keep a lid on it. And in particular, there seems to be evidence that that some of the White House staff, the permanent staff, two housekeepers in particular, have been infected with COVID, but that they do not want that out there. Meanwhile, we have Secret Service agents who have had to keep very close company with the president, in particular when the president was at Walter Reed. He did this ride ride around in an enclosed car with two Secret Service agents with him who are being directly exposed to to his uh, unmasked uh, virus-shedding self. And he also rode, of course, in a helicopter, in an enclosed helicopter with them to Walter Reed. So I think the question is, who should have to come to work in the White House building, in a White House building that is treating this disease so casually, where you have a sick boss roaming the halls and sticking his head into offices, who everyone in some office appears to be in the press office, already five people who appear to have been infected, but it does seem to be running rampant where testing is clearly not as regular as they say it is. People are not masking where care is not taken. So who has to, to put their own health at risk and who does not. Um, So I think there, there are four categories of people that I can think of. One is the press, like should the people who work by covering the white house have to show up and work in that building Two is the people who are directly work for the president who are his political staff um, who've been you know, hired to help him implement his agenda. Three is the Secret Service who are there to protect the president and the first lady and the, and the building itself. And four are the kind of White House permanent staff who are the, the folks who take care of the building, who take care of the president, who clean the sheets, who uh, host the receptions, who make, keep everyone fed and keep the place clean. So do they all have to show up? Are there different rules for each of them? Emily, thoughts? Well, let's see. 
So, I mean, it seems like the most acute question is for the Secret Service, because they can't disappear. They have to be there all the time. And they've also, as part of their job, decided that they're willing to take a bullet for the president. Like, that's a qualification for being a Secret Service agent. They expect that. That's um, how it goes. So when you have this kind of risk that is not from an hostile human enemy and that has been brought about in part because of the reckless behavior of the person you're supposed to take care of, does that change what you're expected to do? You know, watching Trump drive around in this sealed car with Secret Service agents who were wearing masks and some PPE, but they were still in a sealed box with him when he is for sure infectious, that was pretty heartbreaking because it seemed totally unnecessary. Like, it would be one thing if there was some exigent circumstance, but there wasn't. He just, like, wanted to show everyone that he was um, out of the hospital. So that just, I guess the, th- the thing that's so hard is that, like, you want people to do their duties. You want them to take reasonable risks to do their jobs. These are high-level jobs. They matter. But Trump pushes things so far into the land of, like, forcing people into these contortions to do things that are not reasonable risks, that with no acknowledgement of the really bad deal he is forcing on them. And so then that starts making you feel like no one should have to do anything. I was reminded by my new favorite show in the world, McDonald and Dodds. Um, the, the this I hope isn't a spoiler for anybody, but um, they're so trying. Now to pu- everyone's watching it since you recommended it last week. Right. So watch out. They're trying to push people. They're trying to push Dodds out of his job, and so they sit him. They put his office. They put his desk underneath a. Um, air conditioning vent so he has to wear like a coat and a scarf when he's sitting at his desk and that was what reminded me of the secret service so it's their duty to be there and just for such tiny beer which is the approving wave of those who went out to walter reed of course they should do it but it's um not really respecting the the duty they've been asked to do just as an aside if you were trying to constructively drive me out of my job like what you would do is put me Put me under any air conditioning vent. I'd be so happy. I'd be joyful. Put me, <laughs> put me in under. But if you put me in a really hot room, I would be out of there so fast. So any future employer that wants to get rid of me, that's the way to get rid of me. Hot room, loud hot room. Oh, I'll, I'll do something else. I actually think there's different standards. I think what you guys said exactly about how to tr- the, the 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 way that president has trivialized he's taken this thing which is so serious which is the oath of responsibility these secret service agents have taken to protect the country and he's made it so trivial by by having them endanger themselves for such a stupid thing i don't think the press should show up in the white house anymore i think if the if the white house is being this casual about it they should send a camera and like just not this is they, they are being irresponsible and they're irresponsible with the health. They're already reporters. I think some of your colleagues at the Times, Emily, have been infected who have been infected. I, I think they should, you know, make a make a hopefully a collective decision to say we're if this is if this is how you treat us, if this is the way your attitude towards the health and safety of the people who are coming to work here, we are just not going to be part of it. Um, I think the president's own staff, obviously, has the the people who are political appointees have to show up and they it is shameful that they are so irresponsible and that the people who lead that that uh who who've led that white house have not thought 
carefully about the health of the people who are working for them. But if you're a press aide or you're you're you work in the domestic policy office, yeah, you 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 need to show up and you need to probably complain to your supervisor. Hey, we're not you know we're not masking here. We're not there's not enough circulation. Blah blah blah. But I think you have to show up. And Secret Service, similarly, you have to show up. I don't think if you are a White House domestic employee, I think it is totally unreasonable for those people to have to come to work. They did not. They are, that is n- their responsibility. Of course, they are, they are there to serve the country and to serve the president. And working in the White House is in itself like a, a special responsibility. But it, I think it's, it is crazy to think that just because you've done that, you, that you should have to go to work in a place that is explicitly not safe. They did not sign up for hazard pay. They did not sign up for a risky job. And when you have a, a boss and a, a, an employer that is acting so recklessly, I don't think that it's, it is right to make them, them have to work under those circumstances. So they should the not be compelled them- to between them and the Secret Service, or no, between them and between what? them and the political staff, is it that the political staff is political appointees? Gabfest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com/gabfestplus to become a Slate Plus member today. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.